Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hello, thank you for being here. Seton is on a little mini vacation for this segment. Bunch of indictments handed down, exciting stuff. Reminder, I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is the co-host. MurdochPodcast.com, the website, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. And now we're really happy to welcome back Riley Benson, to the podcast from WCBD News 2 in Charleston. I had him on before, and he was fantastic, so I'm glad you've taken time to uh, chat with us again. So on March 16th, we're recording this on the 17th, South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson and the state grand jury uh, issued a new superseding indictment against suspended attorneys Alec Murdoch and Corey Howerton-Fleming. In addition to charges previously indicted by the state grand jury, Murdoch is now up to, I believe, 75 criminal charges. Corey Fleming was suspended from practicing law back in October. This is the first uh, time he's been criminally charged in anything with this indictment. And it's all about going back to the Gloria Satterfield case where Murdoch's late housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, died. That was 2018. A reported trip and fall incident at the property of the Murdochs called Moselle, which is where, in June, Paul Murdoch, Alex's son, and Maggie Murdoch's Alex's wife were found murdered. So these charges against Corey Fleming come out now, and there's a whole bunch of them there, and there's 44 pages, and I've been sorting through it, and I know Riley's been sorting through it. Uh, Riley, what jumps out at you? What are the things that you zeroed in on when you read those 44 pages? Uh, well, Matt, it's, it's definitely a lot. You know, we see, you know, the money laundering, we see obtaining property by false pretenses, computer crimes, criminal conspiracy, false statements, all kinds of, um, you know, breach of trust, you know, going through it, it's certainly a lot. And, you know, th this isn't really a big surprise hearing uh, Chad Westendorf's deposition gave to a state grand jury um, late last month kind of went through all of this, you know, kind of highlighting that, you know, Corey and Alec had been working um, kind of hand in hand along with potentially Judge Carmen Mullen when they were going through the death settlement for Gloria Satterfield. Um, you know, a couple things pop out. We go back to the three checks that were wrote in this. And you also look at a part, and, and I don't know, it's kind of, it's kind of hidden, but it's really well written where Corey Fleming was allegedly aware that when he wrote these checks to Forge, it wasn't Forge DBA, the financial institution. It was in, instead Forge, the fake bank account or Alec Murdoch's bank account that he was using to, you know, get the money or to, you know, put the money into these accounts when he was taking it from the Satterfield's death settlement and allegedly, you know, a number of other um, wrongful death settlements and personal injury settlements and, and things over the years dating back several years. It answers a question that a lot of people, I think, I know myself had in, in your my head was, you know, how did Alec Murdoch manage to do all of this by himself and get away with it for so long? Well, now that question's answered is, you know, at least one other person helped Alec at one point to move some of this money and and to you know, take it from other people and to hide it and, and really get away with the scheme that, you know, looking at it now, it's it's just really shocking to see how this, you know, kind of stayed hidden for so long. 
Well, here's uh, how Corey Fleming was trying to frame this thing back in the fall, was that he was kind of, you know, I didn't know what was happening. Uh, Alec Murdoch is pulling all the strings here. I, I just did what he told me to. That was the general pitch, right? And now it's not right. looking, well, at least the state grand jury has decided that's not what was going on. Am I correct in how they tried to frame it early on? That's, yeah. And I think that he's actually still trying to frame it that way, whereas, you know, he thought, he thought Alec was doing everything that he was supposed to with the money, he was doing right by the money, was putting it in the places where it needed to go. And Corey, so he says, was just trusting Alec to do the right thing. The state grand jury is obviously trying to prove whether or not there was criminal intent. And I, you know, I think he heard it today in the hearing, but they certainly believe there was criminal intent on the behalf of, of Corey Fleming. And I know we're going to get to that, but he certainly is trying to paint himself as a victim in this. And that was a similar sentiment we got from Chad Westendorf when he um, testified the banker at Palmetto State Bank, who was the personal representative for the Statterfield boys. Um, it seems to me everybody's trying to paint themselves as a victim of Alec Murdoch. And, and the state grand jury doesn't really seem to believe that to be the truth for Corey Fleming. I want to go back to the three checks you mentioned, and you, you mentioned Forge, which for those who don't know, there is a Forge firm that is a real thing, and right. it happens with personal injury. Forge is involved in that. Alec, through his wisdom, decided to name his basically shell company or fake company Forge and just put a different ending on or whatever, and so people might not connect the dots. But Corey Fleming, you're saying, knew that wasn't the regular Forge. The money laundering charge against Fleming says that the converted money owed to the Satterfield sons to his own use, and he spent it on his mortgage and large credit card debt, and there was fraudulent expense checks too. So there's a paper trail. Yeah, that that yeah. that's the surprise. I mean, that to me is really surprising because these are attorneys. You would think that they know that if you're going to launder stuff, you got to be a little bit better at it. Were you were people surprised that he was just blatantly paying mortgages and writing uh, checks? Speaking with Ronnie Richter and Eric Bland, who obviously represent Satterfield at this point, I mean, they've been able to produce almost every check that was written to the account, and it was Richard A. Murdoch, sole prop DBA Forge, is how he um, tried to distinguish it. It's shocking to me that you had such a paper trail, that you're able to produce these checks. You know, you're talking now more than two years later, and it really is kind of shocking, and I think that's really the sentiment that most people, uh, that even Ronnie Richter and Eric Bland have, is the fact that this was pretty much right there the whole time. And just with a little bit of digging, it's uncovered, really. It's just a whole lot, Matt. I want to uh, point out again that uh, the 75 charges from the state grand jury, Murdoch schemes for, for Alec, uh, defrauding victims of a total of about eight and a half million. The new one is 18 charges against Fleming for schemes to defraud victims of about 3.6, a over $3.6 million. And I know you talked to the former attorney general of South Carolina, Charlie Condon. What did you take away from your conversation with him? Uh, You know, I've spoken with Charlie Condon several times as this case has kind of wrapped its way through the legal system. Charlie had a couple of points he made. Um, You know, one, obviously, this is shocking to just about anybody that's specifically in the legal profession, but really anywhere. It's shocking. It's disheartening. It serves as a black eye on the profession. I think that's something you heard from Eric Bland several times. And I had mentioned this is, you know, this answers the question of how how did Alec Murdoch manage to get away with these schemes for so long by himself? Well, like I said, he didn't. He had help allegedly from Corey Fleming and possibly others. 
at this point, he kind of talks about, you know, if you're Corey Fleming, if you're Alec Murdoch, you're looking to maybe try to cut a deal. Uh, at this point, you're steering down some serious potential prison time in a South Carolina jail. So, you know, one of the things that Charlie talked about is at this point, you're thinking if you're Corey Fleming, if you're Alec Murdoch, you know, Jim Griffin, Harputlian, or Deborah Berrier, you're, you're trying to share any information you have at this point. You're working with Attorney General Alan Wilson's office, with SLED, with, with anyone that you can to maybe trade some jail time for information because both of them being 53 years old, they're staring down a pretty hefty, potentially hefty prison sentence. And those are kind of the sentiments that, you know, Charlie walked through and, and, and Charlie talked about really just the stain that this leaves on the profession that you have two trusted attorneys who were believed to be, you know, at least stand up, if not very respectable attorneys and people within their communities before all this started unfolding is, is really, I think the shock and just kind of the sentiment that's there for so many people right now. I want to get to what happened today at the hearing, but I want to give people Eric Bland's statement when the indictment came down. His quote, it's another golden day for justice in the entire Murdoch saga. I think the grand jury has spoken loudly and clearly that Corey Fleming was not just another one of Alec Murdoch's victims and did not believe his defense that he was too trusting of Alec. As lawyers, we have made it our career's work to hold lawyers accountable for their misdeeds and breach of the trust they owe their clients. Bland continued, but we are not naive. This is just another black eye for our profession and creates further mistrust that some of the public has regarding our profession. Riley, today, what was the hearing about? What was for and set the scene for us? Well, today, of course, was um, Corey Fleming's bond hearing in front of um, Judge Allison Lee, who has handled Alec Murdoch's previous bond hearing. She set a bond for $7 million for Alec Murdoch back in December. Creighton Waters, you know, arguing the state, the state's case. He works with Attorney General Alan Wilson's office, saying the state's case is that Corey knew what he was doing when he was helping Alec Murdoch you know, divert the money in these schemes, that he was taking this money to pay personal bills that he couldn't pay at the time, couldn't pay bills apparently, and said that he had staff, he, Corey Fleming directed staff to write these fraudulent checks, these you know, sheets, uh, making all of this happen, that Corey Fleming knew what he was doing, knew that he was breaking the law, breaking the trust of the Satterfields, the clients um, that he's supposed to represent. He talked about how they think that he should have had a $25,000 bond for each charge. He's looking at 18 charges. So that's a number well above six figures. That was really the case, you know, kind of argued by the state. And of course, Corey Fleming's defense was Corey was an upstanding man who was involved in the community. He's been an attorney for 28 years. He's been married. He was a victim of Alec Murdoch. They're not the same person. Um, they really tried to argue this point where they really distanced tried to distance Corey Fleming from Alec Murdoch. And I think, you know, that was kind of bought by Creighton Waters and, and Judge Lee that obviously these are two different people. But, you know, at the end of the day, Corey Fleming still committed um, serious charges, obviously, by what has been brought against him. You know, one thing I really thought interesting when I was listening to the hearing and, and kind of watching it was, Fleming's defense argued that he's cooperated with this from the beginning. He's, been, since last fall, been working with state officials on the investigation. He's he's paid restitution to the Satterfields within a month of us all coming out. And Creighton Waters turned around and said, no, Corey Fleming has not cooperated with this investigation. And, you know, while he did pay the Satterfields back, he still helped Alec Murdoch swindle the Satterfields allegedly out of, you know, $3.4 million or this large number of money. So. 
it was kind of an interesting back and forth from both sides. And and I know we're going to get to it, but Judge Lee ends up setting $100,000 surety bond with a 10% cash option, which is significantly less than what Alec Murdoch got several times in front of Judge Lee. But you know, I think the thing that really stood out the most to me was how much Corey Fleming is trying to distance himself from a guy who, from all accounts, they've been longtime friends. They, you know, they went to law school together. They've practiced, you know, the law profession closely in the in the Low Country for several years. So that's what really kind of shocked me, and, and you know, obvious reasons for doing that. But it was interesting to hear that they are saying that Corey Fleming, the amount of money he personally received, was somewhere mm-hmm. around a hundred grand, and right. the rest went to Murdoch. Yeah, they're saying that Corey just took his cut of the attorney fees for representing the Satterfields against Murdoch and that Murdoch took the rest of the money. But the state's case is while he did return his, you know, the amount that he took, he still was responsible in helping Alec Murdoch swindle or scheme the rest of the death settlement money away from the Satterfield boys. Right now, Corey Fleming is only uh, indicted and being charged on things to do with Satterfield. Is there any other cases that are mentioned or is it just Satterfield in this one? My knowledge is just Satterfield and Eric Blaine spoke during the hearing today about all of these charges. But to my knowledge, Corey Fleming's only being tied to the Satterfield death settlement at this point because, you know, he represented the Satterfields against Alec Murdoch. Anything we're uh, missing? Yesterday, talking to Ronnie Richter, we were talking about these new charges coming down. Obviously, Ronnie is Eric Blaine's partner representing the Satterfields. He one thing he mentioned that kind of stood out to me is crimes and schemes and things like this. In his words, takes a village of people to commit and get away with. And so they're continuing to investigate other individuals who potentially helped other participants who potentially helped Alec Murdoch and allegedly Corey Fleming swindle this money and other death settlement money or other you know money away from other clients. So, he, you know, it's interesting to hear that you know, a lot of people thought Corey Fleming was the next person who would maybe come down with these charges or be caught with Alec Murdoch. Sounds like there could be other individuals who were helping this scheme and other schemes along too. So I think I think that's something that's very important to kind of keep in the back of your mind that these probably aren't the last charges connected to this and even other cases that we're going to see related to Alec Murdoch and potentially other people who were involved in these these schemes, these crimes, alleged crimes, of course, everyone innocent till proven guilty. It's just very interesting to hear from from that perspective. And also the FBI is involved. So uh, there could be federal charges for various people at some point. And obviously they are digging and digging and digging. They, I would guess, would want to find as many people as possible. So those people can, at the very least, flip and give more details about where all the money went. Because we still assume that there's a bunch more money missing, unaccounted for. I also find it weird or interesting that you know Corey Fleming gets a hundred grand or so, and Alec gets millions. It didn't seem like there was an equity of of crime there. I've got to figure out why that's happening. It's been fantastic, uh, Riley. How do they uh, find you on Twitter or wherever you are? It's uh, at Real Riley Benson on pretty much any social media platform. And WCBD. And even you're not in the Charleston area, you can go online and and check out Riley's work. Uh, Riley, really appreciate it, man. Matt, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to a Hampton native, the town of Alec Murdoch, and find out how the town, how she is reacting to the image of Hampton 
and how it's being portrayed nationally. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. We're joined by the executive director of Hampton Friends of the Arts and many other hats that she wears. Heather Bremer is here. Hi, Heather. Hi, how are you? We're fantastic. We wanted to reach out because we have talked to some Hampton residents in the past. And one of the things we find interesting as part of this whole story is how this sudden spotlight is on this little hamlet that is not necessarily a great spotlight. And talking to people in that area that have been affected one way or another, some are annoyed, some are angry, some are unwilling to talk about it. They don't want to talk to reporters or podcasters or whatnot. But we like to get that side of the story of what it's like to be in Hampton and suddenly be associated with the Murdochs. And you have penned an op-ed, I guess, called Rural uh, Redefined, and you were mentioned, and Michael DeWitt does a great job for the Greenville News and others, and he's a Hampton person. And he wrote an article in the Greenville News about how the whole Murdoch situation has turned this tiny little town into, I guess, in, in some ways, a, a punchline to national media. According to Google Analytics, just one online search term, Murdoch, Hampton, South Carolina, has been searched an average of a thousand times per month. So that brings us to this. So what is it that got you, I don't know if riled up is the right word, but it's been since June that you haven't been so fond of the way Hampton and the area has been portrayed in the national media. What is it that has gotten to you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on and having this discussion because I think it's a good one to have. Our organization is an arts nonprofit. We're located on Lee Avenue, which is right in the heart of Hampton. Walk out my front door at the theater and look down the street and the courthouse is right there. So we're right in the center of town. We are an arts organization, but we're doing a lot with economic and community development. And so one of the things that we have is a film school for high school students where they're learning about, they're actually, the most recent course we offered was in documentary filmmaking. And so right as this all started to kind of unfold, we were already discussing, you know, what kind of narratives are there about rural places and what do people who live elsewhere, you know, what do they say ab about places like ours and, and what are 
common perceptions or perhaps misperceptions. So that was sort of the backdrop. This was an ongoing conversation that we were having with teenagers who come to us for different things. And then there was a tweet. There was a tweet by Dana Kennedy of the New York Post. And I think that was the one that really sort of made me feel like somebody kind of needed to speak up on this. What did so, the tweet say? Miss Kennedy was in town for the bond hearing when Alec was there. I think it was the first time that he was trying to get bond. So it was out in Varnville. And so a lot of reporters were in town for that. And she, Dana, took a photo of a restaurant, Gray's Paradise, long closed. It had been a beloved little mom and pop uh, soul food spot for many years, but closed down when the you know, the proprietors long since passed away, I think. And so it's it's boarded up. It hasn't been a functioning restaurant in in years. And so, but she took a picture of that and made a tweet that that was basically where she was going to have her lunch. That was the best place to get lunch. So the representation, the idea of that was, this is a town full of closed up, boarded up stores and restaurants. And that is not the case. Right. And like, woe is me, here I am stuck in this backwater and I'm going to take the risk <laughs> of eating in this little, you know, dilapidated right. building. Which, first of all, the family, um, the Gray family, hardworking family, uh, African-American family um, with a history of entrepreneurship, they took offense because that spot had, had been very special to them at one point and now it was made to be right, a national ridiculous. mockery. And, uh, but also it just kind of, to me, just went to show sort of the contempt for something that wasn't New York. And, and in some of her articles, I've, I've read her coverage, you know, she refers to Hampton as a swamp town, talks about it being you know, only an hour and a half, but a world away from chic Charleston. And it's true, you know, we don't have any James Beard award-winning restaurants in Hampton, but we do have several really nice places to, to grab lunch. And many of them not very far from, from where she was. And I'm sure she did get lunch somewhere that day. It sort of rattled me. One of the, your great lines is uh, the word backwoods is used a lot, and the implication is that it's synonymous with backward. That's, that's a great line. Explain what, what you're thinking is there. Well, well, right. You know, I always say that we're not worse. We're not worse than Charleston. We're not worse than Savannah or Hilton Head. We're different. We do have, obviously, there are challenges that come in rural communities, and, you know, I'm not trying to deny that those exist, but there are also a lot of talented, um, accomplished people who choose to live in a rural setting. And actually, you know, we have um, at our art center, we currently have a modern art exhibit installed. It was a faculty show by South Carolina State University, which is one of our HBCUs here in South Carolina. And so every member of the art faculty contributed something to this exhibit, which is now, you know, in the art center. And um, for many of those professors who have been everywhere, shown in New York City and Los Angeles, mm. went to art school across the country. Um, one of them actually is from Toledo, Ohio, and he um, moved his studio to Hampton this weekend. But some wow. of those professors and their spouses were, were chatting with me 
And, you know, after spending a week or so here, coming back and forth to do the install and do the opening, um, they were like, wow, I could, you know, this is a viable place. When we landed, you know, a lot of them transplanted to Columbia, which is sort of the nearest big city, because everybody kind of thinks that that's where the opportunity is, you know, especially in creative endeavor is to be in a big place. So they went to Columbia, South Carolina, and they commute, most of them, about an hour back and forth to Orangeburg, where it, where um, South Carolina State is. Several of them said to me, if we moved here, first of all, there's all kinds of space available. We have shared studio space in Columbia. We could have our own freestanding studios here because of the affordability of real estate. Same goes for housing. We're still an hour from state, but then we're also an hour to the beach. We're an hour to Savannah. So there are advantages to living in a place where we live. And so there are a number of reasons why people decide to call it home. So we have a a range of people here. We have a range of things to offer, yes. things to do. And we certainly have uh, good places to eat. <laughs> Alton Brown um, is on record as saying the best meal he ever had in his life was in Estill, South Carolina, wow. right here in Hampton County. We spoke to Sarah, and she's given us a lot of the history of Hampton, which has been incredibly interesting. And there are a lot of accomplished people who have come out of Hampton. So now when anyone hears you're from Hampton, the first thing that comes into mind is, oh, this all this Murdoch mess. So how has that right. been for you as a resident of Hampton? You know, you tell someone where you're from, and then they immediately go to that place. For sure. So I was in Miami in October. And uh, I was waiting to get on a cruise ship and somebody asked me where I was from. And I said, oh, you know, my companion was from Charleston, but I was traveling from Hampton. And oh, my goodness, it caused such a disturbance in the line of people waiting to get their COVID tests. They were just like, <laughs> wow. oh, my gosh, that's that town. You must know that guy. <sighs> what do you think happened? Right. And, and of course, <laughs> to a certain extent. That's expected, but where it's caused a hardship is we have a lot of good things happening. We have been leading the state for industrial investment. Um, I think we were number two uh, for 20 during the pandemic. You know, we had a uh, still a, a great amount of investment with new companies relocating to Hampton County. We have undertaken these big revitalization efforts and our historic theater has been reopened. That happened. Our grand reopening was on the 75th anniversary of the theater on August 13th, 2021. And all the news about that, that normally would have been, you know, reported widely in our region. All the coverage of this case sort of sucks all the oxygen out of the room. And the good things that we have happening kind of don't get out there because they're not as interesting as chaos. Yeah. Right. I know. I can sense that you have a lot of pride for your community. And despite everything that has happened, I also wanted to ask you, what has it been like when you have all these this national media descend on your little town? Have you found it intrusive? Well, on the one hand, I'm sure it's got to be good for business, right? I mean, I'm sure it's helping out our little hotels, our restaurants, our gas stations. That's all great. It has been, I think, a little weird. It does get a little intrusive. There are some people who really, you know, and that's the thing too, this, at the heart of this, there are people who are dead, who have been lost and 
there and our community mourns them. That's a great point that I think I is getting lost. I did not know those, any of, of these folks. I, I knew Alec very tangentially. For me, it's not emotional, but for many folks it is. And to be repeatedly getting phone calls and being stopped on the street and asked to talk about these things, which are painful, you know, is of course um, intrusive. And then again, with that too, we kind of see how it, how the coverage is sort of slanted in certain ways. Like I've been contacted many times by film crews who are coming in to film segments for different shows and they'll contact me and they'll say like, oh, you know, we need space. We just need a space to do an interview. We got to be able to set up lights. We got to have this, we got to have that. And, you know, I have three large buildings on the main drag in downtown that I administer. So of course, yeah, sure. Come on down. But the theater has been newly refurbished, so it's a beautiful space. And we've actually had a documentary film crew come in and film in there. So it's obviously an adequate space to set up lights and cameras and do that sort of thing. But then it's, it, you know, almost immediately when they come in and they see it, they go, oh, mm, this wasn't the look. Hmm. We wanted a different look. Hmm. But it's like, well, this is what Hampton looks like. <laughs> yeah. Not all of it, but you can't, yeah, you can't change what it (laughs) is. But for street news, like, how is it supposed to look? Would you like me to do a Hollywood setup or something? Yeah, Yeah. that is, that's, that's (laughs) strange. Uh, Well, this has been great talking to you, Heather. I really appreciate it. The best of luck with all the investments and arts coming to Hampton. And if you ever want to reach out again, you know how to find us. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for giving me the time today. Thank you. That was really informative. Thanks again. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. One other thing we want to cover is we've gone through another judge in the quest to find a judge who will hear the case, whether or not Alec Murdoch's phone calls from jail should be in the public domain and the public can hear them. We've went through four judges so far. Uh, The last one we talked about last episode with Judge Michelle Childs. Now, Seton, I think we're up to judge number five. Yes, so we have a fifth judge, less than two weeks, and now we have a fifth judge, which is Judge Cameron McGowan-Curry of Florence, South Carolina, who has been a federal court judge since 1994. This is all in relation to a FOIA request that released some jailhouse tapes of Alec Murdoch and whether they should be allowed to release more of these jailhouse tapes. And when we last talked, it was looking like Judge Childs was going to be the judge that would handle this. On March 8th, she filed an order saying she had become aware of, quote, of allegations of impropriety made by non-judicial, non-legal sources, which I think is referring to some of the papers and blogs and whatnot. Uh, she talked a little about, and you can back and listen to the last episode, you can talk about the employment with uh, the law firm of Nexon Pruitt. She worked from 91 to 2000. There was allegations that while as a judge, she used the law firm's PR arm, NP Strategies. And there was also word that one of her current law clerks worked for Murdoch's lawyer, Dick Harputlian. Well, they said she hired this NP Strategies. NP Strategies is a PR firm that is owned by Nexon Pruitt, her former law firm. And Judge... Childs was actually in contention to be a Supreme Court nominee under Biden. So the reports were that she hired this NP Strategies to 
help her in this bid. It's also interesting to note that NP Strategies is the PR firm that the Murdoch family hired to help them navigate after the deaths of Maggie and Paul. But now we know for sure, or at least there's uh, the PR firm, uh, Nexon Pruitt Law Firm and the PR firm, the chairman, Leighton Lord, said that Judge Childs never use the services of the law firm or NP Strategies. No, and they said, actually, the the statement that was released is, I guess, NP Strategies was used by Nexton Pruitt to field any questions that they had related to Childs' previous employment with them, uh, but that was never used by Childs. Um, so Judge Childs, what she does is she files an order and basically told anyone who has any objections to her hearing the jailhouse tape matter should file an objection. Ellick's attorneys, Harputlian and Griffin, did object. And what they say is that they know that she wouldn't be biased, but because of the interest of the case and the media coverage, they don't want any appearance of impropriety. So that's what they say in theirs. Um, But actually, the lawyers for the interim jail director, Shane Kitchens, said that they did not object. And he, because he's the one who released the tapes. He's the one who released the tapes under the FOIA request. And I think uh, Griffin and Harputlian are very clearly saying they don't have any question that Judge Childs would do a great job. It's just that now there is this spotlight and why even have her put in this weird position where they'll right. say like, oh, well, you da, 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 even though half the stuff they said about her wasn't true, not half. Well, I mean, she did work for Nexon Pruitt 22 years ago, and I guess the Probably the biggest one that maybe was that one of her law clerks had previously worked for Dick Harputley, and that that is, so you could potentially just not have that law clerk having anything to do with it. Um, But so what Judge Childs did is she issued an order, and in that she says that judges are required to act at all times in a manner that promotes public confidence and integrity and impartiality of the judiciary. So... She she wants to be above reproach. Obviously, someone who would be a potential Supreme Court nominee is very impressive. The other thing with this new assignment of the judge, and I don't have total clarification. This is definitely something to ask John when we have him on again, is when they assigned it to Judge Curry, they changed it from a civil rights to an omnibus challenge. I don't really know what that means, and I definitely want to look more into that. Reminder. MurdochPodcast.com, Murdoch Podcast Facebook page. As a matter of fact, when you go to the Murdoch Facebook page, our Facebook page, you will see a, a great graphic of Corey Fleming in all his relations to all the people in this case and how he's tied into things and with the newest indictment that really is, is interesting. So check that out. And of course, we'll take your comments. Always love to hear from your thoughts, questions, what we can do better. We'd love to hear from you, and we are so grateful that you listen, and we'll talk soon. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era 
of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.